I'm John, and this is DOLW2, episode 68, The Rite of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 2, pages 491 to 497, and then 507 to 508 of prayers at the end. Back in England, news of Leadbeater's unorthodox methodology at the manor found its way into occult circles outside of the Theosophical Society that was beginning to feel heat of a growing international scandal. Tillett noted that the well-known writer Dion Fortune charged that a mysterious group of male occultists were using homosexual techniques to build up a reservoir of dark spirit astral power. Nevertheless, Ladbeater managed to hold on to his theosophical standing and Bishop's mitre. In 1932, Mrs. Bassant, who was in poor health, asked him to come to Adiar. The 78-year-old Ledbetter granted her wish. She died on September 20, 1933, with him by her side. Ledbetter followed her in death on February 29, 1934, and their ashes were mingled in Adiar in the Garden of Remembrance. Wedgwood died a less poetic death. He contracted syphilis through his many homosexual liaisons and went insane from paresis of the central nervous system. In the final chapter of his biography and notations on Leadbeater, Tillett summarized the charges of sexual abuse leveled against the seer by some of his pupils and other young men with some startling revelations and revisions. Tillett reported that Leadbeater had taught sexual techniques other than solitary masturbation to a very select circle of young male initiates in connection with their occult and sexual magic training. These included ritualistic group masturbation. The seer demanded total secrecy from his boys, added Tillett. In a footnote to the U.S. scandal, Tillett stated that in 1911, Douglas Pettit, the young American boy who initially confessed that Leadbeater had given him instructions on masturbation, revealed that the seer had also sodomized him and at least two other boys he knew. Pettit said that Leadbeater told him that the masters preferred sodomy to normal male-female sexual relations. Hubert Van Hook one of Ledbeater's earliest pupils, also reported he had sexual relations with the famous Theosophist. The secret life of Charles Webster Ledbeater as a clerical homosexual pederast teacher teaches us a number of important lessons, both about the victims and the abuser himself, that can be related to the ongoing clerical sex abuse scandals that have rocked Amchurch over the last three decades. First, yesterday as today, yesterday year as today, young male victims of clerical sex abuse rarely report the crime against them. Second, for the homosexual pederast, the priesthood is an ideal cover. Third, clerical pederasts, like all perverts, lie about their activities. Fourth, young boys with religious vocations are likely to believe anything that their religious superiors tell them. Fifth, parents of clerical sex abuse victims are not want to recognize, much less admit, the existence of the crime. And finally, the homosexual collective, then as now, is quite capable of colonizing 
and exploiting the religious life for its own ends. By the time Leadbeater and Wedgwood and company were through with the liberal Catholic Church, it was on the verge of total disintegration. Interestingly, the program of liturgical renewal introduced by Leadbeater and his associates into the Church's rites and rituals that include occult doctrine has remained a permanent feature of many liberal Catholic churches up to the present day. Blasphemy. One of the notable one of the noticeable features of religious references found in contemporary gay literature and articles published and circulated by the homosexual collective is its irreligious, scatological, and even blasphemous content. For example, in an essay titled The Necessity of Excess, Pat Patrick Califia Rice is a transgendered bisexual and licensed therapist and member of the kink community with a son he, she is co-parenting with his, her ex-lover, also transgender, described her, his, her fisting experience. But I also knew that there was something sacred about our deep intimacy that was higher than any clerical, than any chemical could ever get me, perhaps as high as heaven itself. We borrow a little divine grace and provide a smaller version of, of the shelter of that transcendental love. The man who ranges himself in a sling, awaiting anointing with Crisco, has become in perfect love and trust like a child to baptism. Lust can be a sacrament that washes us clean of envy, pride, and enemy, and returns us to daily life with a satisfied heart, renewed hope, and greater compassion. Bruce Rogers, author of The Queen's Vernacular, has noted that since they gays are outlawed from the comfort of most religious religions, they have imparted a decidedly sacrilegious quality to their slang. Examples cited in his book include the use of the word bullshit for bishop and the phrase, may miss God strike you dead. For similar examples of irreligious gay slang include the term Holy Week, meaning any period of time when one abstains from sex, the phrase Tijuana Bible referring to re really putrid pornography, and the S&M slash B&D chapel, which is the torture room equipped with weapons for inflicting pain and humiliation. Since the early 1970s, there has been an increase in outright blasphemies against Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, by the homosexual collective, especially in gay clerical circles, where Jesus is often portrayed as a homosexual and St. John and Lazarus, his lovers. These blasphemies are certainly not original. Church history records that the occult, theosophical, and Kabbalistic writings of anti-Christian secret societies down the centuries have profaned our Lord in a similar manner. In the late 15th century, a number of crypto-Jews known as Baranos who were assimilated, who simulated conversion to Catholicism but continued to worship as Jews were accused by the Spanish Inquisition of cursing Jesus and calling him a sodomite. In the second half of the 20th century, the blasphemy was publicly repeated by the Reverend Canon Hugh W. Montefiore, Montefiore a rugby schoolboy and an Anglican convert 
from a notable Jewish family who served as vicar of Great St. Mary's Cambridge University Church in England. The occasion was a speech titled Jesus, the Revelation of God that Montefiore delivered at the 50th Conference on Modern Churchmen at Oxford, England, July 24 to 28, 1967. As part of the conference's new quest for the historical Jesus, Montefiore's talk centered on certain peculiar characteristics of Jesus, specifically that he remained unmarried and lived for 30 years as a private citizen before beginning his public ministry at the River Jordan. During his speech, the Anglican minister claimed there was no indication that Jesus was conscious of his vocation as Messiah or the Son of God, a plainly heretical teaching. Among the reasons Montefiore gave as to why Jesus may not have married was that he was a homosexual in nature, that is, women held no attraction for him. The homosexual explanation the Anglican cleric told his audience is one which we cannot ignore. While Jesus had women who were his friends, he explained, it was men whom he loved. From conception to death, said Montefiore, Jesus was an outsider. Whether or not we accept the so-called virgin birth, no one could deny that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock, he continued, and that he closely allied with the outsiders and the unloved, publicans, prostitutes, and criminals. If Jesus were homosexual in nature, and this is the true explanation of a celibate state, then this would be further evidence of God's self-identification with those who are unacceptable to the upholders of the establishment and social conventions, Montefiore continued. The character of Jesus here discloses an important aspect of the nature of God, befriending the friendless and identifying himself with the underprivileged, he concluded. When the London press picked up news of Montefiore's titillating comments, especially his references to Jesus as a homosexual, the Anglican cleric was forced to publicly defend his thesis. He explained that he never said that Jesus was an active sodomite, and that the word homosexual when applied to human nature does not contain or imply any moral connotation whatsoever. It is simply descriptive of a certain type of personality. It in no way implies or attributes any kind of sinfulness to Jesus, he told reporters. As readers of his, this lecture will notice, I have been careful to stress because I happen to believe the human perfection of Jesus as in, in his entire obedience to his Father's will. Montefiore explained in an attempt to stave off his critics. For his blasphemous insights that Jesus might have been a homosexual and most certainly was a bastard, the Anglican Church offered Montefiore the post of Bishop of Kingston upon Thames in 1970 and then Bishop of Birmingham, even though it was rumored that Downing Street vowed he should never be a bishop. He also served as chairman of the Church of England's Board of Social Responsibility. In his biography of Montefiore, John S. Pearl Benz gives us some additional information on Montefiore's background, including the fact that he was president of the Gaia Trust, part of the global green-slash-new Genesis pantheistic-slash-environmental 
movement founded by Robert Lovestock in 1988. According to Lovestock, on Earth, she, Gaia, is a source of life everlasting and is alive now. She gave birth to mankind, and we are part of her. The Gaia Trust seems an unlikely organization for an Anglican minister like Montefiore to have attached himself. But then again, ex-Anglican Robert William Williams, whom I have already quoted in connection with clerical outing and who believed that Lazarus was Jesus' homosexual lover, said that Mary slash Gaia was a goddess whose priest he aspired to be. Morton Smith on Jesus as homosexual magician. In 1972, Morton Smith, an ex-Episcopalian priest and professor of ancient history at Columbia University, also took the, the blasphemous charge that Jesus was an active sodomite as well as a magician. Smith told an audience at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature that he had discovered a fragment of a letter written by St. Clement of Alexandria at the ancient... Sinai Desert Greek Orthodox Monastery of Mar Saba in 1958 that purportedly revealed the existence of a secret version of the Gospel of St. Mark. According to Smith, this secret gospel suggested that Jesus performed a secret rite of baptism that was conducted at night with the candidate naked except for a white sheet and that the rite possibly included a physical as well as a spiritual union. Smith did not leave out the equally blasphemous suggestion that the communion rite of Jesus for his elite initiates may also have included sodomy. Five years later, in Jesus the Magician, Smith transformed Jesus into a magician or shaman and stated that after his death, his disciples formed a secret society to perpetuate Jesus' secret magical rite. Edward Hobbes, a critic of Smith's scholarship who was visiting Professor was visiting Professor Claremont College when Smith was preparing to publish his new book, commented that having failed to convince everyone that Jesus was executed for running a gay liberation group, caught in the act of in Gethsemane, the secret gospel, he now turned to prove he was executed for being a magician. Jesuit John McNeil on Jung and Jesus. In the spring of 1981, New York native, a homosexual bi-weekly now defunct, carried an interview with Jesuit priest John McNeil, an openly homosexual priest and co-founder of Dignity, and Dr. Lawrence Mass, who helped establish the gay men's health crisis. In 1976, Reverend Pedro Arupe, Father General of the Jesuits, gave McNeil's book, The Church and the Homosexual, a Neil Obstad, and permission to publish even though the book clearly descended from church teachings on homosexuality, and even though McNeil may have made it perfectly clear that he had committed himself to the homosexual collective, both publicly and privately. The following is a portion of the New York native interview with McNeil. Interviewer, you are a practicing psychotherapist as well as a Jesuit scholar. Are you a Jungian? McNeil, my psychotherapeutic orientation at least for now, is the in the object. At least for now, is in the object relations school, more Sullivanian. But Young had much to say. Each of these special qualities he attributes to the homosexual community is usually 
considered a striking characteristic of Christ himself, like the extraordinary ability to meet an individual's unique person free of stereotypes or the refusal to accomplish goals by means of violence. The point I'm trying to make here is not, of course, that Christ was a homosexual any more than he was a heterosexual. His example clearly transcends our current homosexual heterosexual dialectic. My point is that Christ was an extraordinarily free and fulfilled human being. Interviewer, what about the many scholarly observations, including Boswell's, that Christ most deeply intimate human relationships was with St. John McNeil? I think what I see in Jesus is the total freedom to love, to relate to any human being. Many priests have succeeded in incarnating these positive qualities of Christ. And as we've said, many priests in many denominations are homosexually oriented. The gay community, if it were allowed to be itself, to develop its special qualities, has a major role to fulfill in helping to bring about the ideal that Christ represented. The statement that by McNeil that Jesus was neither homosexual, was neither heterosexual nor homosexual, or homosexual is an obvious denial of the incarnation that Jesus is the true God, is the Jesus true God and true man, and not some kind of sexual hermaphrodite male. Further, instead of an outright denial to the suggestion that St. John's relationship with our Lord was a pederastic one, McNeil opens the door to blasphemy. Ironically, it took 10 years before McNeil disappears and the Vatican Congregation for Religious officially dismissed him and from the Jesuits and deprived him of his priestly faculties after determining that his public dissent from the church's moral teachings on homosexuality caused grave scandal and was injurious to the teaching authority of the church and was potentially as injurious to the salvation of souls. When they did, it was with the greatest reluctance on their part. Indeed, it was McNeil who made the final choice to remain with the collective and leave the Catholic priesthood. On October 27, 2002, McNeil, a recipient of Dignity's USA's Life Achievement Award 1997, gave a sermon in New York to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Dignity slash New York. After acknowledging the presence of his long-term lover, Charles Chirelli, in the audience and reliving his alleged martyrdom at the hands of Rome, McNeil charged that by limiting his, the priesthood to heterosexuals or repressed homosexuals, the Vatican is guaranteeing the total collapse of the cultic priesthood, a collapse that will necessarily lead to a new form of shepherding. He said that the attitude of gay of Catholic gays and lesbians toward the institutional church should be one of supreme detachment and indifference, and that we must detach ourselves from all external authority and learn to hear what the Spirit has to say to us directly and immediately in our own experience. He proclaimed the coming of a new church, a church of the Holy Spirit, one that will be totally democratic, with no hierarchy and no priesthood, and where everyone possesses the Holy Spirit within themselves, everyone an authority. 
That, that sounds like a declaration of war on the Roman Catholic Church and the Catholic priesthood to me. Time to free the slaves. In his essay, Accursed, Robert Seidenberg claimed the homosexual culture is a valuable asset to civilization. There is already an abundant supply of heterosexuals, as our ecologists are warning us perhaps too much, warning us perhaps too ample a supply. We may live to see the day when those who renounce traditional family life as homosexuals have will become the new ecological cult heroes. In the homosexual network, Father Enrique Rueda reached just the opposite conclusion that the homosexual collective and its subculture represents a sick and diseased portion of the social body, and both should be driven back underground. Dr. Melvin Anschel agrees with Rueda that the homosexual collective and its gay emissaries should be given no quarter in society, by society. One thing is indelibly certain. Homosexual groups cannot be tempered by kindness. They regard such consideration as a form of weakness. Unfortunately, they only respond to strong authority, nothing else. The problem is acute. Either society accepts the tenets of perverts and becomes a bastion for perversion, or we protect life-sustaining sexually dependent sexuality dependent upon family and social conscience. There can be no compromise. Unfortunately, to date, the state has failed to take up the moral gauntlet that the homosexual collective has cast down at its feet. But what is even worse is the church's failure to defend Christ and Christian civilization against the new barbarian barbarians of which the homosexual collective is but a small part. Volumes three to four of this series are intended to provide a historical and contemporary perspective as to why the Roman Catholic Church in the United States and around the world has failed to take up the challenge levied by the homosexual collective. Like much of the material presented in this book, it will not make for happy reading, but I presume that the reader has already surmised as much by now. And now the lining prayers instituted by Pope Leo XIII in 1884. Hail Mary, three times. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Hail Holy Queen, Salve Regina. Hail Holy Queen, Mother of mercy, our sweetness and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn the most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us, and after this our exile, show us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Our God, O God, our refuge and our strength, look down in mercy upon Thy people who cry to Thee, and by the intercession of the glorious and immaculate Virgin Mary, Mother of God, of St. Joseph, her spouse, of Thy blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and of all the saints in mercy and goodness, hear our prayers we pour forth for the conversion of sinners and for the liberty and exaltation of our Holy Mother, the Church. Through the same Christ our Lord, amen. 
St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust down to hell Satan and all wicked spirits who wander through the world, seeking their own souls. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Three times. The prayers of Fatima. O my Jesus, forgive us, deliver us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of your mercy. O Jesus, it is for your love, for the conversion of sinners, and in reparation for the sins committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love ye. I ask forgiveness for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love thee. Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, I adore thee profoundly, and other offer thee the most precious body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ present in all the tabernacles of the world, and reparation for the outrages, sacrileges, and indifferences by which he is offended, and through which, and through the infinite merits of his most sacred heart and of the immaculate heart of Mary, I beg of thee conversion of poor sinners. Prayer for priestly intentions. O God, we earnestly beg thee to bless thy church with many vocations to the holy priesthood, men who will serve thee with their whole strength and gladly spend their lives for thy church and to make thee known and loved. Amen. Mary, mother of priests, obtain for us many holy priests. And this is all my reading from volume two. There's nothing left but notes left, which I'm not going to read. as too many. And so um, the next book I read from, I'll continue in volume three. So I'll conclude my podcast now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.